man, it feels like college football. And then you walk in, you look at the 50-yard line, it's an even split with crimson and cream on one side, burnt orange and white on the other, and it's just a half circle of both with a whole circle of hate. Hello and welcome to Always College Football. We appreciate you being here. I'm Greg McElroy. Whole circle of hate, man. What sums up college football better than that? Because we love to love, for sure, but we might love to hate just a little bit more. We have a great show in store for you today. As you know, on Wednesdays, we always try to take a little bit of a step back, give you a big picture review of what's going on in the sport that we love so much. So we figured what better way to do that than to go through all of our preseason prognostications to tell you just how dumb we were. And in some cases, how right we were, but not as often as we would have liked, but we could focus on the things that we did dumb because that is probably a little bit more important and probably a little bit more fun. We're going to revisit our preseason top 25, tell you what we got right and what we got wrong, what was dumb and what was smart because there is no gray area in college football. We're going to revisit our conference championship teams and the teams that will be playing in the conference championship game, maybe make an adjustment or two, and then we'll revisit our preseason prognostications on the college football playoff and make a tweak or two that we kind of like as of right now, based on what we've seen through one month. It's early, but this is kind of the one-month report card, if you will, for the first month of the season for a lot of these teams. So let's get to it the way we always get to it on Wednesday editions of Always College Football. It's the college football eliminator. Teams are getting knocked off an awful lot in the last couple weeks. The last few weeks, we've been kind of organizing teams into groups, okay? And we have six groups. It's it's pretty self-explanatory. If you haven't been following, here's kind of how it goes. You have group one, which are basically playoff locks. You have group two that look really, really good and have a really good win. You have group three that look great and have passed at least one test. You have group four, which is a group that hasn't played anybody just yet, but they look the part and have the horses. And group five are the undefeated teams that haven't played anybody and not sure if they have the horses to go the distance. Group six are the one loss teams or the multi loss teams that I think still have a chance to get in. So we're kind of grouping teams up. We started with, gosh, like 53 teams. This is our eliminator. We're starting to whittle it down a little bit. So it's become a little bit fun. Group one last week had one team. This is, of course, the group that's locked for the playoffs. This week, there are zero teams. That's right. Georgia has been removed from the playoff locks. Not because I, I was impressed with what they did at Auburn. It's just I was a little concerned with their inability to stop the run, which I, I looked at and rewatched the game multiple times just so I had a clear mind when making this assessment. I do think Georgia is more gettable on defense this year. Really optimistic about what Carson Beck's done. But the run game or the inability to consistently run the football against high-level competition might be something that we evaluate. So I'm taking them out of a playoff lock group for now and replacing them in one of the other groups. I'll get to them here in just a minute. So zero teams that feel like a lock right now, which is kind of fun for, for college football. Tier two, group two, however you want to phrase them out. These are teams that look great and have a really good win. Three teams in this group last week. There are three teams in this group this week. Florida State. They beat LSU. They also beat Clemson. You're going to say, well, LSU and Clemson both have two losses. I get it. I still think they're good teams. I really do. I know that Florida State uh, will have more cha challenges coming up in the next couple of weeks. Maybe we'll have a better understanding of who they are. But Florida State's still in group two right now. Ohio State, 
Great win against Notre Dame on the road, and they look fantastic. Texas, great win on the road at Alabama. They've looked fantastic. All right, so those are the three teams that make up group number two. Group number three, these are teams that look great and have passed at least one test. Notice I haven't said Georgia yet, just for the record. Last week, there were six teams that were in this group. This week, there are seven teams in this group. I am removing, for the moment, the Utah Utes. With all due respect to Utah, uh, yes, while they have passed a test, I don't know if at this point I would consider them to be a real championship contender at the moment. We'll talk about them here in a minute. I am adding Georgia to this list. All right, Georgia's in here. They have looked great past one test. I think the test against South Carolina is a solid one. I think a test against Auburn on the road is a solid one, but either one of those two teams I would consider to be elite. So I have Georgia here in group number three right now. Washington is in group number three. I think Washington's passed a couple tests, but how good are they? I mean, is Michigan State very good? Uh, is Arizona very good? Is Cal very good? It's up to you to decide. I don't think they've passed a test just yet. So I'm keeping Washington here in group number three. Penn State is in this group as well. Penn State, I... I Flirted with the idea of moving Penn State up to group two because West Virginia is now four and one. Now, how has West Virginia fared in their four wins? It's up to you to determine, but I flirted with the idea of moving Penn State up from group three to group two. Oregon's in this group. They, of course, have passed a test against Colorado. Miami in this group passed a test against AM. Washington State in this group passed a test against Oregon State. And then USC also moved up from group four last week with their win against Colorado. If I'm going to give Oregon credit against Colorado, I'm also going to give USC credit against Colorado. Here's group four, two teams in this group. Last week, there were three teams. This week, there's two teams. These are teams that look great, have the horses, but haven't played anybody just yet. Michigan and Oklahoma. You're going to say, well, Michigan, hang on a second. They went on the road and beat Nebraska. I don't think Nebraska is very good. Oklahoma, you're going to say, well, they went on the road and beat Cincinnati. Well, I don't think Cincinnati's great either. So these two teams... Plenty to play for, plenty to prove, and they have plenty of meat on the bone, especially Oklahoma knowing what they have coming up. Group five, undefeated, but probably don't have the horses right now to compete. Last week, there were eight teams in this group. Now we're down to five. North Carolina, they can easily move to group four this week with a win against Syracuse. That's a passing at least one test. Louisville, they'll move up to group two this week with a win against Notre Dame. Maryland, they'll move up to group two with a win against Ohio State. Kentucky, group two, with a win against Georgia. And then Missouri, I think they can move up to group three, that's passing one test, with a win against LSU. So now that's 17 teams that we've gone through so far in the Eliminator that all have chances, especially here in group number five, to move up or move out, depending on their performance this weekend. And then finally, group six. These are the one-loss teams that do have the horses to run the table, but I don't know if they will. They're obviously skating on very thin ice at the moment. Okay. Last week, we had five teams. Well, there's two teams that I am removing from this conversation. I'm removing LSU based on their performance against Ole Miss. And then I am removing Clemson. They won last week. Greg, what are you talking about? I know, but I still am seeing issues offensively from time to time that are just they're very inconsistent on that side of the ball defensively I love them there's a lot to like about what they have defensively but offensively man there have been some growing pains now 
they are they will more than welcome i'll welcome them back in the group they go out and just hang a hundred hang a half a hundred on everybody moving forward but they're just not there right now man offensively i think even clemson fans will acknowledge the offense for whatever reason is just a little bit stop and go uh, i am also adding utah to this list now Utah, if you look at their schedule, there's a lot of rumors flying around that Cam Rising and his medical staff have targeted the bye week for him to return to action. Now, he's been practicing the last couple of weeks, but he hasn't been cleared by the doctor that actually did the procedure. Well, guess what? Here's their bye week. So Utah will take this week off. Cam Rising is likely to return next week, or at least all signs point to that, barring no setbacks or anything like that. So I think Utah, even though they lost this past week and looked stagnant offensively for the last handful, a great quarterback can eliminate a lot of concerns with your offensive production. So I'm adding Utah to this list. Oregon State, should they be there too? Now, Oregon State got beat pretty badly against Washington State a couple weeks ago. But if you look at it, it's really first half versus second half. It's a tale of two halves. So initially, I did not have Oregon State in this conversation, but I am now adding Oregon State to this conversation to the one-loss teams that I think can beat everyone on their schedule. Oregon State, that was clinic last week. With what they did against a really, really good defense, that was an excellent performance against Utah. So Oregon State gets in. Then rounding out the top 22 teams that I think can potentially get this whole thing done. Remember, there's 17 that are undefeated there's 22 that I think can potentially get this thing done. Notre Dame, Alabama, and Texas A&M. Good news for those that are not fans of the SEC. One of those two will be eliminated this weekend. Alabama plays against Texas A&M on Saturday at 3.30 on CBS. So that's the eliminator where we stand right now. We are now down to 22 teams in college football that I think that can potentially get this thing done. But like we said, we're flexible week to week. Maybe someone jumps into the mix after a great performance this upcoming Saturday. We figured since we live in a world in which there is no gray area, we would revisit some of the preseason prognostications that we did on the show. Why wouldn't we, right? And we figured, you know, you can't be kind of close. You can't be somewhat right. You can't be somewhat wrong. Basically, what I've found, at least in this industry as it relates to sports, you're either good or you're bad. You're smart or you're dumb. You're a championship contender or your coach should be fired. There is no middle ground. Like, it's a binary system. Ones and zeros. Binaries, there's only two options here. Ones and zeros. You either got it right or you got it wrong. Okay? So we figured we'd revisit our top 25 and we'd basically go through and say, that was smart. That was dumb. Do you guys want to play along? Now, you guys can are more than welcome if you choose. You're, you're certainly more than welcome to tell us we're dumb about everything. I'm totally supportive of that. I don't. I promise I won't take it too personal uh, because I even can look back at my preseason top 25 and say, man, that really was, that was a bit of a reach there. Uh, so let's just go through it as best we could. Preseason top 25. Georgia we had at number one. Smart, right? Smart. They're a good football team. Still, I know people have questions. I know they're not maybe necessarily cooking with gas the way they have in recent years. But, man, that's a good football team. And they're going to get better. They're still playing a lot of players on defense, man. They're rolling a ton of guys. They're playing a bunch of guys in their front seven defensively. Carson Beck, I thought, looked great last week, starting to come into his own a little bit. Went on the road to a hostile environment, played beautifully against Auburn, man. There's a lot to like. 
about what I've seen from Georgia. So them at number one, that was smart. Michigan at number two, that was smart. <laughs> I know that they haven't really played anybody yet, but the defense was the big question mark for me. I, I know people have said, well, you know, the offense, the offensive line. The offensive line was a question mark. Maybe they're not running it as well as I anticipated, at least at this point. But then again, it feels like almost all offensive lines are a little bit of a work in progress right now. Man, the defense is getting after it. I mean, they almost shut out Nebraska last week. Nebraska hadn't been shut out since like 1968 at home. Uh, they didn't allow a score until the 55-minute mark of the game. And then how about this? I, I saw this crazy stat actually earlier today. How about there has not been a single team this year, not one this year, that has taken a snap inside Michigan's 10-yard line? Just let just let your mind just consume that for a minute because I, I had to read it a couple times myself when I saw that. So that is absurd. That's how good Michigan is. Now, Nebraska almost got there, but they didn't quite break through that brick wall that is the 10-yard line when Michigan defense is on the field. All right, number three was Alabama. That was not smart. It was dumb. Uh, they had some work in progress to figure out uh, on the offensive line. I thought that'd be, here's why I, I'm quantifying that as dumb because it, the way I thought it was going to look is not the way it's looked up to this point. Now it might be smart when we look forward five, six weeks from now, but Alabama still has things that they're ironing out along the offensive line. I think the defense is rounding in form. So maybe our assessment of them leaning more on the defensive side of the football was smart. But at this point, they're still very much a work in progress. So to have them at number three ahead of some of the teams that are coming up probably was not the right decision. At number four, we had Ohio State. That was smart. Ohio State is still really good. A lot of people, Ohio State Buckeye fans, wanted them at number one in the preseason. No, because there was question marks about the quarterback spot. There were question marks a little bit about whether or not they'll be that much better defensively, right? Those were real questions, and those were fair questions. So Ohio State at four, even though a lot of people felt like that was wrong or that was too low... I think it was appropriate. So I think that was actually smart right now. Here's where it gets really bad. You ready for this? Even I, uh, as someone that really prides myself on trying to be as accurate as possible, I got this one way wrong. That would be the LSU Tigers. I had them at number five. The sick part is I took Florida State in the first game of the year. So how could I even justify having LSU at number one? Uh, but either way, I digress. LSU, if I were to re-rank them right now, I would not have them in the top 25. You can tell, oh, they're scoring a million points. That's awesome. That's great. The biggest question mark for LSU is still the secondary. And the secondary to me right now is a massive liability. And I don't think it's going to get a whole lot easier against the likes of, uh, against Bama, against uh, Texas A&M, uh, against some of the other teams they're going to face. Like, how about Missouri this week? I mean, that's a, that's a tricky game. One that they could very easily lose. Missouri's quarterback, wide receivers playing great this week. So LSU at number five in the preseason was dumb. I get it. Florida State, is was our number six team. Uh, I'd probably have them at four right now in that vicinity. So that was smart. You know, maybe I maybe I undervalued them a little bit coming into the season with all the different uh, assessments of of what they might be. At number seven, we had the Texas Longhorns. At the time, people were saying we were dumb, and I, I was I, I understood it was taking a risk. <laughs> Texas has burned me in the past. They have burnt me many times in the past, but this year we were kind of on the mark and, and we kind of assessed, Hey, this roster feels coiled. This roster feels ready to maybe make that leap. I, I think you can make a strong argument that Texas should be the number one team in the country. So our assessment of Texas, even though probably three or four spots off at the moment was smart. I think at least at this point, number eight, we had Washington. 
Uh, and a lot of people were beside themselves. You know, how can you have Washington as the highest ranked Pac-12 team? Well, we felt good about Michael Penix. We felt great about his weapons. We thought that they would at least have a pulse on defense. That appears to be pretty smart at the moment. Probably in right now, if I were to re-rank them, I'd have them six or seven in that vicinity. And I have them eight in the preseason. Felt good about it. At number nine, we had Utah. Now, based on where they're at right now, probably dumb. But then again, we didn't foresee Cam Rising missing the first five games. And actually, I don't know about you. I'm not trying to like tout it, okay? Because we got it wrong. I, I'm Just hear me when I say that. We got it wrong. But considering they're four and one without their starting quarterback and have actually started two guys at the position is, is pretty dang impressive. And it actually speaks to how good the roster is all, the, all over the place. I mean, I think they are really talented still. So... This one at the moment is dumb, but when we fast forward five or six weeks and if all of a sudden the offense catches fire and they find some life, then we might feel very differently about where we assess Utah at the moment. At number 10, we had Clemson. That was not smart. Defensively, they're still great, but the Garrett Riley higher offensively has not cured all of their woes. Did not forecast them losing to Duke in the first game of the year. Did not forecast... Uh, well, I thought they would lose to Florida State, obviously, based on where we had Florida State in the preseason. But still, at this point, they're not a top 10 team. So we got that one way wrong. At number 11, we had Penn State. Here's why I'm going to tell you. This was dumb because they should have been ranked higher. <laughs> I didn't know that Penn State would be this good defensively. Now, the offense, actually, in the last couple of weeks, maybe some growing pains that have come to the forefront. But that's a really solid group. I think the offense is going to get better in time. I'm, I think Drew Aller is going to get more comfortable in time. But we should have had them in the top seven or eight. Based on their personnel, based on what they had returning, and based on how they've played here through the first month of the season. So having them at 11 in the preseason was dumb. I will certainly shoulder the burden for that, Penn State fans. You guys deserved better. At number 12, we had USC. This was smart. That's actually, I think, probably about where I'd have them right now. Because USC, while they have the reigning Heisman Trophy winner and an incredible offense, and they have had playmakers like Zachariah Branch emerge, even though he missed last week, there are still question marks on the defensive side. Now, in the first few weeks, I actually felt like that group collectively had made progress. I actually thought, hey, you know what? This group actually, they are a bend-don't-break team. This is a team that might actually have some dudes on the edge of their defense. They might be able to actually continue to play the way they play offensively without hurting how often their defense is on the field. So early on, I'm thinking, man, we probably got this one wrong. USC is better than what we originally thought. But after the most recent performance, and you're only as good as your most recent week, we're probably about right with where we had USC in the preseason. At number 13, we had Notre Dame. Uh, I actually think that was smart because Notre Dame right now, if I were to re-rank them, probably maybe a spot or two ahead. If you have them in the top 10, give or take, I think Notre Dame, obviously very, very close loss to Ohio State, but we don't count close losses here at Always College Football. You either win or you don't. And they didn't win. And it was on their home field and they had the ball on their racket and they came up short. Now they had a great win on the road at Duke to deserve immense amount of credit for that and finding a way to get it done. 
But still right now, I would have them outside the top 10. And for us to have them at 13, I feel like it's probably about appropriate. We fast forward to season's end, 13 is about nine and three. And that's kind of where I think Notre Dame might end up if they continue playing the way they play. Of course, tough one against Louisville this weekend. At number 14, we had Wisconsin. We thought Wisconsin was just going to take the world by storm with this new look offense and they were going to just get going and the offense is going to be what carried them and the defense would be fine, but maybe not elite. You know, we got it wrong. This was a dumb move. We overvalued just how quickly Phil Longo would get things going on that side of the ball. Now we might fast forward a couple of weeks and that group gets better. But as of right now, 14 was way too high for the Wisconsin Badgers. At number 15, we had Ole Miss. And people were saying, you guys, you guys are nuts. To have Ole Miss ahead of Tennessee, that is absurd. Well, it turns out to be probably about right. Uh, I think Ole Miss was probably a smart decision. Probably a mid-teen team. Granted, still concerned a little bit with what they have defensively, but they bounced back nicely offensively with what we saw last week against LSU. I think they've adequately replaced their wide receivers. That group's really good. I think Jackson Dart's playing amazing. The offensive line and the run game is not where I'd like it to be down the road. Hopefully that group continues to improve and hopefully the defense starts to turn the corner a bit. But I think Ole Miss was probably smart having them ranked at 15 in the preseason. At 16, we had Texas A&M. And a lot of people were saying that is way too high. And Honestly, I kind of felt some heat on this one coming in because I'm like, I don't know, man. We're rolling the dice on the Longhorns and the Aggies. No way both can be good, right? Well, Texas A&M's playing really good, man. And what's leading the charge is the elite front seven play defensively. Talking about a team that's number two in sacks, number one in tackles for loss, number two in or number one in sack percentage, uh, top five third down defense, top five defense overall. So you look at AM, man, they're doing a lot of good things defensively. So having them at 16, and by the way, if they win this weekend, this will maybe turn from smart to dumb because they will be ranked higher than 16. Pass up right now, I think we're about right with how we've evaluated the Aggies. At number 17, we had Oregon. This was dumb. We should have had them as a top 10 team. Uh, Bo Nix came back, was a little worried about the coordinator transition, but that hasn't been a problem for the Ducks up to this point. I wasn't sure, too, how they'd adequately replace their secondary. A couple great players in the back end that were gone. This group's been awesome, and they have been awesome so far up to this point. Now, they haven't really... I know they beat Colorado, but they made Colorado look really bad. I don't think Colorado's as bad as they looked against Oregon. They think they're really aggressive up front, too. Uh, I like what I've seen from Oregon, so we were dumb. We missed this one. They should have been much higher than they were. Here's where it gets really fun. Uh, Tennessee was our number 18 team in the preseason, and their fans were big mad. They were not happy. <laughs> this is a playoff team, was what we were told, and that Joe Milton was going to win the Heisman. Um, fast forward through the first month of the season, I think we're pretty close to being about right with Tennessee at the moment. Um I still have concerns a little bit about Joe Milton being sporadic. They've now lost Brew McCoy, who I think was probably their most reliable pass catcher at the moment. The run game has been the area in which we did not anticipate such growth. They've been awesome running the football. I do think Cade Mays being back along the offensive line is going to help that group play a whole lot better down the stretch. So this thing might change pretty quickly as Tennessee might get going as the season goes along. But I think 18 in the preseason and where they're at right now is probably about right. 
At number 19, we had Kansas State. They're probably... I think they're a little underrated right now. Right now, they're narrowly outside the top 25, probably according to most. I I think Kansas State's pretty good. I'm going to say this was dumb, probably slightly overrated. But at the same time, I don't think I anticipated Missouri getting them there early in the season. And I am still pretty optimistic about what Kansas State might do down the stretch. So as of right now, it was not a good decision, but I do think as we fast forward, this will probably play itself out and end up looking close to being right. At number 20, we had UCLA. Now, I can't unsee the performance against Utah. And while UCLA currently lives outside the top 25, they are favored this weekend against Washington State, a team that has been playing really well and is universally respected. So... I think UCLA, while they're unranked right now, I think it's could flip here down the road and they could play their way back into the top 25. So at the moment, not smart, but maybe down the road, maybe it will be. Here's one we got way wrong. All right. I know you guys love it when we get them way wrong. All right. Texas Tech, they were our 21 ranked team. Uh, them and Clemson are probably the most disappointing teams up to this point. It was a dumb move to ha- take a take a flyer, take a risk. Thought they'd be able to carry over some of the momentum from the bowl win last year and what they did in Joey McGuire's first year just hasn't materialized. Now they played Oregon tough, uh, and granted the score at the end wasn't quite indicative of maybe how the game went. But Texas Tech, man, can't you are what your record says you are to an extent, and to have Texas Tech in our top twenty-five in the preseason was wrong. We got that one way wrong. Another one we got way wrong. You guys are liking this part, don't you? UTSA, we had them as the top group of five team. They are not the top group of five team. They're not even close to the top group of five team. Fresno is. So we got this one way wrong. I thought that Jake Hayner's departure from Fresno would have more of an effect on what Fresno's ultimately done. Well, in steps Mikey Keene. They haven't skipped a beat. Fresno should have been in there. UTSA not. So we got that one way wrong, and we were really, really dumb to continue to follow that train. Oklahoma, we had them at number 23. This was dumb (laughs) because Oklahoma's way better than that. And I think they have a chance now. A lot of people are still, you know, kind of reserved about their judgment about what Oklahoma might be. Now, should they be in the top 10, top 12, depending on where you have them? This team is playing good football. And Dylan Gabriel looks crazy comfortable. The defense has improved. They have, I think in a lot of ways, really taking strides on that side of the ball. Now they're going to find out this week, man. Like it's almost impossible to gauge where Oklahoma is at the moment because they're still have Texas sitting right in front of a team that drubbed them last year. So maybe Oklahoma gets it going this week. Maybe they beat the Longhorns and they get the universal respect that they deserve. But as of right now, it was dumb to have them in the 20s because they should be in the teens at the very worst. Maybe, maybe, just maybe with the win this week and they move in to everybody's top 10. And number 24, we had TCU. Now, this is one of two ways to evaluate this. This was low compared to a lot of people's original rankings. So that was smart, but it was dumb to even have them in the top 25. All right. That's kind of where I assess TCU. Like they had too many departures off last year's team. Now they won three in a row. They lost last week, but they're going to lose some more games as the game continues to move forward. So I'm not sold right now on, on TCU. I'm just not. I think there's still a lot of things to iron out, but they can be dangerous, but not to the point in which they're going to come close to repeating anything that they did last year. And then at number 25, we had Oregon State. Uh, Dumb. (laughs) Much like their friends to the West, I guess you could call them friends, uh, in Eugene, we undervalued 
what Oregon State was going to be this year. Oregon State's legit, man. And I know they lost a couple weeks ago to Washington State. They're not a team that's built to come from behind. So Oregon State at number 25 was dumb. They should have been higher than that. And they're starting to play like that as well. So very bullish on what the Beavers might do here moving forward and think that their best football could potentially be in front of them. Let's revisit a couple other things that we made prognostications on and just clarify whether or not they're smart or dumb. In the ACC, we had Florida State over Louisville. I have the same champion, but I actually have a different competitor if I had to do it all over again. I'd take right now, I'd take Miami over Louisville. I think Miami's playing really good football. So if I had to repick the ACC right now, I'd still take Florida State to win it, but I'd take Miami as the runner-up with kind of the trajectory that they're on right now. In the Big 12, I'm going to leave it. I had Texas over Oklahoma. In the Big 10, I had Michigan over Wisconsin. I'm going to leave it for right now partly because I'm just totally unimpressed with anything I've seen from the Big Ten West. A lot of people liked Illinois. A lot of people thought Iowa. Wisconsin might be the lesser of many evils. (laughs) There's just not a lot of quality depth right now in the Big Ten West. I will ride with the Badgers at the moment, but whoever wins the East will likely beat whoever wins the West handily. All right, let's just say we need to get rid of divisions. We'll just start with that. Get rid of divisions, Big Ten. I can't wait till that happens next year. In the Pac-12, we took Washington over Oregon State. I'm going to switch that one. I'm going to take Washington over Oregon at the minute. In the SEC, we took Alabama over Georgia. I'm going to switch that. I'm going to take Georgia over Alabama. So some adjustments there with some of our prognostications after the first month of the season and our playoff predictions in the preseason. We had Alabama, the number one seed over Florida State, the number two seed, Michigan over the number three seed, Georgia, the national championship. We had Michigan over Bama. Tweak it a little bit. I'm going to tweak it just a hair. I'm going to have Georgia as the number one seed over number four, Florida State. I'm going to take Michigan as the two seed over number three, Texas. And then I'm going to repeat kind of what I just talked about, but not in the semifinal in the national championship. I'm going to ride with the Michigan Wolverines to win the national championship over the Georgia Bulldogs. So a lot of good, a lot of bad, and a lot that's likely going to change in the next month of the season. If you could take one tweak from your top 25, what would it be? Like if you could say, would it be Oklahoma, put them a little higher? Or what was your one thing you wish you could redo? Oh, there's so many. You get one. Yeah, I know. And I wish I could bat a thousand, right? But like, that's just not realistic. Like you, if you can just go 50-50 in this world, I feel pretty good about it. If there's one tweak that I feel most egregious about was probably having Texas at number seven in the preseason. Now, you're going to say, hang on a second. They're, they're at number, like, number four right now. But I let history impact my evaluation of this year's roster. And even if you look back to last year, like last year's roster was really, really, really good. Now, they lose their starting quarterback. They lose to Texas Tech, even though they had a big lead in the game. They play terrible against Oklahoma State and lose that game. But when this team was playing really well and all the youth that they had playing, all these different positions, like it, everything pointed to Texas making a run. Everything did. But being burned by them in the past had such a, it just had clouded my judgment so significantly that it was almost impossible to trust them going into this year. So I felt like I took a risk by putting them at seven when. In all actuality, coming into the season, based on what they have on paper, based on their personnel, based on coaching continuity, 
based on the amount of production that's returning on both sides of the ball, they should have been ranked at least, at least in the top four or five, at least in the top four or five. So I think just letting perception and past mistakes, I think that clouded my assessment of the team itself. And I, I just wish, I wish I wouldn't have just followed the, you know, the, the crew and, and, and saying that this team is just not legit. The other one that I most egregiously missed on, I know I get to pick one, but I'm going to pick two, uh, LSU. And, and I think, I, like, I thought LSU was a legit playoff contender. Uh, I did. I mean, I thought Brian Kelly, year two, you got a quarterback returning. You got weapons all over the field offensively. Everyone on the offensive line that that played at a high level last year is back. Like there is no way this team should take steps back whatsoever. Like that should not happen. What I did not account for was the strong leadership that was on the team last year and knowing that some of that leadership graduated and has, I don't want to say damaged the culture, if you will, but their presence is noticeably absent. Like BJ Ojolari, for example, defensive end, not like a game wrecker by any stretch, but a guy that completely set the tone for everybody in the locker room. And him being gone is a significant loss. They're now playing out of gaps defensively. They're not playing great along the defensive front. They've tried to toy with taking Harold Perkins and, and putting him at a position where he doesn't look as comfortable as he probably should. And then you add 12 portal players on the defensive side and all of which in the secondary. And you think about too, think about the SEC West just in general. Think about the weapons that AM has. Think about the weapons that Ole Miss has. Will Rogers and, Tex and Mississippi State. I know that LSU manhandled them, but, but they, you know, coming into the season had pretty good weapons. Uh, you look at the, the fact that LSU has to play uh, Missouri, who has Luther Burden, one of the best receivers in not just the SEC, but all over the place. Like you can't be weak in the secondary. You just can't. It's too important. And there are such significant question marks in the secondary for LSU that to think that they were just going to be able to bring in four new corners and those guys are all going to play really, really well to the point where you have them in the top five in the preseason that was taking way too much of a risk. And I, I should have been able to assess the challenges that that might entail and how collectively it could potentially have a real negative impact on the team. All right, bonus then. Who has a better chance of finishing the season unranked, LSU or Clemson? You know, every year we hear that a top 10 team will finish the year unranked. Is it going to be Clemson this year or LSU or both? Probably Clemson. Um. And look, let's just call it what it is. Uh, the college football playoff committee, I think, does a better job of just shedding biases. Uh, that just, I believe in the integrity of every single member of that thirteen player, thirteen person committee. Like, I think those people are really in it for the greater good. They don't get paid to do it. They take time out of their own schedule to go and try to service college football. And, but I still think that if we look at the AP poll. While the ACC is getting the respect that it deserves, the ACC, for whatever reason, is never going to be held in the same regard. Whether they should or shouldn't be is up to you. You can interpret that as you wish. But the ACC and the court of public opinion is not going to be held in the same regard 
as the SEC. So if LSU knocks off a team, you know, if LSU finishes nine and three and Clemson finishes nine and three, or Clemson, let's say LSU finishes eight and four and Clemson finishes eight and four, LSU will be ranked more than likely and Clemson won't be because Missouri's ranked and Wake Forest isn't. Using that as an, obviously Wake Forest and Missouri, two very different programs, but they're just held in different regards. So I think Clemson's probably the more likely of the two to finish unranked. Um, but then again, I mean, right now, I wouldn't have either in the top 25 based on what I've seen through the first five weeks of the season. Now we turn our attention to our midweek mailbag. We appreciate all of you for submitting the questions that you've submitted the last couple of weeks. Please continue. If you could, if you want to, if you don't, I mean, if you don't have to, we'd, we'd prefer it. <laughs> if you could follow us at always CFB on both Twitter slash X and Instagram, it'd be awesome. This is where you can kind of interact with the show a little bit. We put out stuff all the time. So follow us there. You can also follow me individually at Greg McElroy. I'm retweeting the midweek mailbag and those that respond, we get to your questions on the air. So we appreciate all of you for submitting the questions the last couple of weeks. And we look forward to continuing to answer your questions about college football or the future of college football, what have you. So let's dive in. Let's get started with Rob Temple at Rob, Rob 67 with the Pac-12 dissolving. All the talk has been about who is leaving, where are they going, and who is left. But I haven't heard any talk about what will become of the Rose Bowl game. What are your thoughts? P.S. Love the show. We appreciate you, Rob. Thanks so much, man. Look, the Rose Bowl game is an important tradition. Uh, bowl games in general are an important tradition in college football. I personally love bowl games. Some people feel as though there's too many. Uh, anyone that suggests that there's too much college football doesn't really love college football, but that's kind of where I live. And you can say, oh, well, you know, it takes away from being special and being able to go to bowl games. Who cares? Like, if a team gets to go to a bowl game winning six games, who cares? Like, does it bother you? Like, I'm still going to watch. <laughs> so it doesn't bother me at all. I wish everyone could play in a bowl game. It'd be awesome. But the fact that you get the bowl eligibility of six wins is an achievement for many teams. Uh, with the Rose Bowl, though, I would anticipate the 12 team playoff. It depends on where we go with the 12 team playoff. Uh, how many teams ultimately end up in the playoff? And will the New Year's Six, as they are currently constructed, will they be a part of the playoff? Because right now, starting next year, you have four games in the first round that are on home campuses. So teams ranked 5, 6, 7, 8 will host teams 9, 10, 11, and 12. That's the way it's set up right now. And then the second round will involve four New Year's Six Bowl games. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the semifinals for next year, and don't quote me on this, but I believe the semifinals are the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. So the other four, the Peach, the Cotton, the Fiesta, and the Orange will serve as the quarterfinal matchups, and the national championship game will be played wherever the national championship game is played. So I would imagine that the Rose Bowl game will abandon the traditional Pac-12 Big Ten model and just be rolled into the new version of the college football playoff. And if I had my druthers, even though the Rose Bowl is really about the parade, that's the way the Rose Bowl committee feels about it. the game and the parade are all kind of intersected into one. I wouldn't be against having the Rose Bowl as the permanent home of the college football playoff national championship. That's my own opinion, but everyone seems to feel a little differently about that. Let's go next to LJ Robinson, L Rob golf. Are we going to have to live with bad snaps and suspect pass pro from the O-line all year at Bama? It seems like this is the kind of stuff that should be getting better as the weeks progress. I agree with you. 
bad snaps. I'm not sure what the deal is with that. And that's kind of gone on a lot of different places this year. But Bama in particular has had multiple bad snaps. One against Ole Miss over the quarterback's head. They had, had several that didn't result in fumbles, but were off the mark that led to slow meshes and bad plays altogether. So you would like to think that that would get corrected. As far as the pass protection is concerned, Alabama has kind of adjusted their scheme a bit and has helped their tackles out a little bit. They've rolled the left tackle a little bit. More guys are getting opportunities at that position. So it hasn't been as much of an issue. But yeah, bad snaps, man. I can't figure it out, man. It's week five, week six. This cannot continue. And we've seen it at a lot of different places in, in college football. Saw one this past weekend uh, between... It was Kansas and Texas. I just don't remember who it was. Was it Texas? Was it Kansas? Either way, the ball was snapped before Quinn Ewers. It's exactly, I believe it was Texas. The ball was snapped before Quinn Ewers was ready for it. It hit him right in the helmet. They weren't on the same page. They didn't communicate appropriately. And next thing you know, it's a huge loss. So something to be mindful of. It's kind of all over the place, and I really wish it wasn't. Glove2AZ uh, is asking, Maryland's getting 19 and a half points as of this tweet against Ohio State. That seems... Like a crazy spread considering Maryland is blowing teams out this year. This seems like a back and forth game coming down to the wire. They played tough. They played OSU tough in recent years. What am I missing with the Terps? Uh, I don't I tend to agree with you a little bit, knowing that when I looked at the line initially, I believe it opened around 20, 20 and a half. Now it's down to 19 and a half, indicating that money's coming in on the Terps. I understand why this would probably be a spot where you got a 5-0 and team in Maryland going against a team that's also undefeated in Ohio State. Ohio State's going to get a lot of public sentiment as it relates to the gambling lines. So naturally, people are going to lay the points with the Buckeyes no matter what. It's just They're one of those teams that everybody bets on no matter what. Ohio State, Bama, a handful of others. No matter what, you can put this point spread at 100 and there'll be people that bet on the Buckeyes. So in this game, I think it's a tough one to pinpoint because I just don't know at the moment that much about Maryland. I mean, we've seen them play. We've watched them play. I've seen them operate. But at the same time, who has it been against? And how applicable are their previous performances to the performance that we're going to get this weekend? So if I had to tell you which side to take, I would take the points. But I certainly don't feel great about it at the moment right now. Let's go to Ricky Tiki. Cade McNamara of Iowa is out for the year. He had one year of eligibility left. Can he get an injury red shirt now? giving him a second year of eligibility left. Does he lose eligibility if he decides to transfer out of Iowa, which would be a second transfer in his college career? couple layers to the transfer angle first. If he's graduated, then he can transfer again. So if you graduate, you can transfer as many times as you want, as long as you've graduated. That's why JT Daniels has been able to go from school to school to school to school. Now he's at Rice, but he's graduated from Georgia a couple of years ago, played at West Virginia last year, and then now has transferred to Rice. So if you've graduated, which I believe Cade McNamara has, he can transfer wherever he wants to go. The next question remains, will he have eligibility left? With eligibility rules now in college football with covid I, I don't know who has enough and who who has a little. Like, do you get six years, five years, seven years? I've seen guys on rosters that have been playing college football for eight years. I mean, it's unbelievable. So it's impossible for me to figure it out. I hate that he got hurt. And the interesting thing too, remember there's the red shirt rule after four games, right? So you can play four games and not lose a year of eligibility. Well, he's played in five. So does that mean, even though he just played in a little bit of game five, he's played in five games this year. Does that mean he's eligible to maybe come back next year. I don't know. The NCAA 
has kind of started to dig in on certain aspects of eligibility. So I certainly hope Cade McNamara's career isn't over given the way it ended last weekend. But I really, I can't answer the question, Ricky. I, I really just don't know. It's kind of up to the NCAA as they see fit. Let's go to Jared at Jared Owens 11. Can Kentucky's run game have their way with Georgia or will the dogs load the box and make Leary have to beat them? Uh, one, I would imagine that Georgia's going to sell out against the run. They just gave up 218 yards rushing. Ray Davis comes to town off of a 280-yard performance against Florida. You know what Kirby Smart's telling his guys all week long. We cannot let Ray Davis beat us. We cannot let Ray Davis beat us. We cannot let Ray Davis beat us, which means those safeties are going to trigger immediately. As soon as the ball goes into the belly of the running back, Ray Davis, they're going to come down and run support, and they're, they might abandon their post in an effort to make a play at or around the line of scrimmage in the run game. Which means, yes, I agree with you. I think Devin Leary, if Kentucky's going to knock George off, he's going to have to make probably five or six big-time throws downfield. Not saying it necessarily has to be five or six touchdowns, but he's got to soften the coverage. He's got to force those safeties to stay back in their post, and he's got to take advantage of one-on-ones. If you look at Alabama over the years, Ohio State over the years, uh, Georgia over the years, teams with elite talent, they are totally comfortable with putting their players in one-on-one -on -one situations. Why? Because more often than not, their jimmies are going to beat your Joes. That's why to beat Alabama, people have always said, you got to have a scrambling quarterback. You got to have a guy to run around that can create and buy time. To beat Georgia, you got to have a guy that can run around and buy time. That's not true. To beat Georgia, to beat Alabama, to beat the best defenses in college football, you have to win your one-on-ones. So if it's A&M back in 2012, yeah, Johnny Manziel was amazing, but Mike Evans won one-on-ones. The slot receiver, I believe it was Swope, won one-on-ones. That's what it takes. You want to beat Bama in 2010. I was there on the field. And guess what? South Carolina was playing against us in 2010. D. Milner was a corner. He's a true freshman. And Alshon Jeffrey won his one-on-ones against D. Milner, and we lost. Simple as that. Like I remember it vividly. Unfortunately, I remember it probably a little too well. So Kentucky's going to have to win one-on-ones against Georgia if they want to ultimately win the game. Let's go to Mr. Economy, who asked us a couple questions. Now that LSU has two losses and no SEC West team is undefeated, with Georgia and Kentucky playing in week six, what are the chances of no SEC team making the playoff? And the chances are very slim. The reason why is history repeats itself. Georgia still looks really good, right? Still a very good football team, still in prime position to make a run at the college football playoff. And they might be able to lose one and route to the SEC championship and still get in the college football playoff. We've seen that before as well. The SEC has long been given the benefit of the doubt. And I would imagine they probably would this year as well, even if the SEC from a perception standpoint isn't as good as it's been in years past. So SEC's team, SEC has made the playoffs every single year since its inception in 2014. I would anticipate the same this year as well, regardless of whether the champion has zero losses or one loss. The SEC will more than likely be on the inside looking out, if you will. And then Mr. Economy followed up. The top two in the Pac-12 seem to be Washington and Oregon. Huge matchup in two weeks. What do you think? I think we'll break it down in its entirety <laughs> next week. That's for sure, because that's one of the bigger games on the college football schedule this season. What I love, what I hate in college football, we do it every week. It's a fun little segment where we kind of take some, take some turns kind of going around the, the rabbit hole, if you will. Here's what I love right now. I love a wide-open college football playoff race heading into October. We just went through it a little while ago in the college football eliminator. There are like 23, 24 teams that could easily make the college football playoff. There might be more, too, because there's one-loss teams that were not included in the eliminator, but if they get hot, 
Like, what if Ole Miss gets hot and all of a sudden is sitting at eleven to one at season's end? Is that likely? No, I, I I don't anticipate that. I'm just saying it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. So there are a bunch right now with seven, eight weeks to play for some that still are very much within striking distance of getting to the college football playoff. So it's wide open. You even look, Vegas will totally, if you even look at Vegas, Vegas's odds as far as playoff teams, there's like 17 teams that Vegas obviously thinks can make the playoff. So it's pretty crazy. And now granted, they'll go down significantly from here, but knowing some of the matchups that are coming up, like you want to know a playoff eliminator this week, probably A&M and Alabama. You want to know another playoff eliminator that's coming up in uh, a week or so? Uh, maybe Louisville, Notre Dame. Maybe that's a playoff eliminator. So there's plenty of games that will be coming up where we start really eliminating teams as we continue to move forward. I also love this, and I know this is a very, very sensitive topic amongst our listener base. I personally, a lot of people don't. So I understand if you want to push back because you could easily put this in what I hate about college football as well. Neutral site rivalries are awesome. I love neutral site rivalries. Now, is it super fun going into Jordan Hare as an Alabama player and silencing the crowd when you score a touchdown? Yeah, that's like the greatest feeling ever. But you know what also stinks? Being down 14 nothing in Jordan Hare as the Alabama quarterback. Like, that's pretty awful. You know what I really like, though? Having maybe grown up, having gone to the game, I love going to the Texas State Fair, walking in the Cotton Bowl, a place that you feel like should have been condemned 30 years ago. It feels like it might crumble upon itself. It's so old and decrepit. But man, it feels like college football. And then you walk in, you look at the 50-yard line. It's an even split with crimson and cream on one side, burnt orange and white on the other. And it's just a half circle of both with a whole circle of hate. I love the 50-50 split down the middle at these neutral site rivalry games. You see it at Georgia, Florida or Florida, Georgia. I say Georgia, Florida because I don't like the band. But... Georgia, Florida, what have you. Other games too, we've seen them in other places, but especially when they're in a venue that just feels collegial. And the Cotton Bowl in the fairgrounds of Dallas, Texas feels collegial. If they played it at Jerry World, it wouldn't feel the same. No disrespect to Jerry World. Loved watching what Arkansas and Texas A&M did there last weekend. It's cool. Another neutral site rivalry, but it doesn't feel quite as collegial. It just doesn't. I also love that people are finally open you're going to say, well, what are you talking about? What about three years ago? Yeah, I, I get it. But people are finally starting to warm to the idea that a quarterback doesn't have to win the Heisman. We are finally getting like starting to wrap our heads around the idea that like it's possible that the most outstanding player doesn't play quarterback. And that's, that's the way it should be, by the way. I'm not saying the quarterback shouldn't win it this year. And if Caleb Williams runs the table and wins the Heisman Trophy. Like none of us are going to push back against that. He's an amazing player. No one's going to be upset if Michael Penix wins the Heisman Trophy. I mean, I, like, I'm totally on board with quarterbacks getting the recognition they deserve. It's the hardest position in the sport. It's the most important position in the sport. So I think that those guys deserve a ton of credit. But how about the idea now that people are starting to warm up to, you know what, maybe Brock Bowers should be in the mix. Yeah, he should. If the award is supposed to go to the most outstanding quarter, uh, excuse me, it almost does go to the most outstanding quarterback, but I digress. The award is supposed to go to the most outstanding player in college football. And that player this year might be Brock Bowers. All I'm saying is that people feel more open to it now 
than they have been in the past. And I think Devontae Smith a couple years ago kind of knocked down the door there in 2020 when he ultimately won it. But it felt impossible a couple years ago that it was going to a quarterback. And if for some strange reason, a running back had 2,100 yards rushing, they would have a chance. But now feels like the all-purpose player that gets featured on a week-to-week basis might have a chance as well. Here's what I hate. I hate Brian Ferentz's contract. I, I, you've probably seen it. Brian Ferentz is the offensive coordinator of Iowa. And all anyone's talked about all offseason is the race to 225 points. And if he gets to 225 points, then they're going to have to extend him. And if he doesn't get there, he's going to get fired. Well, they just lost their quarterback. And this is why this is the dumbest contract in the history of time. Like either you're happy with your offensive production. And by the way, last time I checked, if your defense holds teams to three and all you score is four, how you get there is probably on defense, I might add, with two safeties. But I digress. If the if your defense scores three and your job is to score six to win, that's all you got to do. The job is to win. And if you win, you get retained. If you lose, you don't. It's as simple as that. So I hate that we have this arbitrary 225 points number on Brian Ferentz's contract. I'm not saying it'll get there. I'm saying he won't get there, but that's all anyone focuses on. It's almost like a low-hanging fruit punching bag for the Iowa offense. It's really irritating to me. I also hate firing coordinators midseason. Now, I understand that coaches get fired midseason, but that's to kind of get a jump start on the next coaching cycle. I understand that it's the nature of the business and it just is what it is. In some cases, guys get fired and the team plays really well under the interim coach. And next thing you know, the interim coach tag gets removed a la Brent Key last year at Georgia Tech. So there are positives that could potentially come from it. But when you fire an offensive coordinator midseason like Indiana did, they fired Walt Bell the day after a team failed to score 17 or more points for the third time against a major conference opponent. I'm not saying it wasn't warranted, but you're basically giving an indicator to the team that we're punting on this year's offensive performance. Now, Rod Carey will step in as the interim OC. Uh, and he's been around as an like offensive line coach in the past and has been kind of a quality control coach. So at least there's continuity there. But I just don't like the message that it sends. Not that it's okay to be average. Not that it's okay to be bad. But remove play calling duties and give them to somebody else instead of just firing a guy mid season and kicking them out and bringing a guy in. That's a quality control guy that doesn't have the relationship with the team and the players the way Walt Bell had the last couple of years. So I, I just think that's a bad move. feels like a desperate move and it's one that I'll never be in favor of. Before we put a bow on the show, I wanted to make sure that, that everybody saw this clip because in my travels as a college football analyst, in my consumption of college football the last handful of years, I'm not sure there's a better mascot than Cosmo the Cougar. That's the BYU mascot. Take a look at this video right here. Jump roping with fire. Okay, we have seen this mascot in particular do some wild things, whether it's like incredible choreographed dances back handsprings, like full tumbling routines. I believe I even saw Cosmo get decapitated, meaning like his head flew off and yet he still landed or she still landed like a full back handspring. These are the amazing things that Cosmo can do. This person or cougar, 
dancing cougar, whatever we wanted to call it, is truly phenomenal. <laughs> it's just one of about a million mascots in college football that just make it fun. And it feels collegial, man. So tip of the cap to Cosmo the Cougar for getting it done yet again. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Thanks so much to all that you do for us. We appreciate you guys more than you know. Continue to like, to rate, and to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can hit that thumbs up button right below us on the ESPN YouTube channel. That would be really helpful as well. For all of us here at Always College Football, Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.